0: Galatians six, fourteen. This is God's word. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning only because of Christ. We say we're not worthy in ourselves, but what Christ has done has changed everything. And so, Father, we want to boast in your son and what he's done for us on the cross. We want to sit in the work of God on our behalf. We want to live a new life out of the death and life of our Savior. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would help me to do as much as I can to tell about the worthiness of Jesus. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be working in hearts. We ask that you would turn us away from all, all trusts and all hopes outside of Christ. Lord, would you convict us of our sin and would you convict us too of our false self-righteousness? We want to enter into the joy of the master. So Lord, would you come and would you meet us and would we receive the gospel with joy? In Jesus' name, amen. So we're a week out from celebrating the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and traditionally, we teach on uh, this Sunday the passage of scripture of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. But as a staff, we felt unction. We felt a, a heaviness to, to start this Sunday by just fixing our eyes directly onto the cross of Jesus Christ. Like we don't, we don't wanna waste any time Looking at what Jesus has done for us, and this was born out of something that I've been noticing that I, I've felt myself and I think a lot of us have felt, and it's, it's a certain amount of tiredness um, like physically tired, yeah, but but a deeper soul level thing where it feels like you've been Running on a treadmill, and you don't know how long it's been. You don't know how much distance you've covered. You don't know how much longer there is to go, and and you start wondering why why am I tired in this? Why am I tired in this? Uh, the things we once celebrate, we're not celebrating as much, and things we uh, would rejoice in, we're not finding the joy in it, and so it 's been a pressing thing for me of asking God what 's going on with my heart and what 's going on with us when we find ourselves in those places of running on a treadmill and not knowing where we 're going, not knowing when it 's going to stop and I think I think uh, I, th- I found identified something, uh, but the way I want to get at it is by uh, telling you about uh, some of the teachings. Of Jesus that we we can find ourselves inside. Uh, in Luke 15, Jesus teaches a trilogy of parables, and uh, it's gonna they're gonna build on one another. And I think it climaxes in one of the greatest stories ever told. And you're probably familiar with these stories. The first one is about a sheep that gets lost, and the shepherd that leaves the 99 other sheep and goes far away from his home to find that one lost sheep, and he finds and he brings it back. And we write worship songs about it, right? Uh, And the second one is a coin that gets lost at home. And a woman who turns the house upside down to find the one coin that is lost at home. And then Jesus teaches on the famous story of the prodigal sons. And you're probably familiar with this story, uh, where the younger brother comes to his father and essentially says to him, Dad, I wish you were dead. Because what he says to him is, "Give me my half of the inheritance. Like I want your stuff. I don't really care about you. Um, I want, I want the, I want the wealth. I don't care about the relationship." And the father says, "All right, here's your half. You can, here's your share. You can have it." And the son then goes. He takes his father's inheritance and he spends it on brothels and bars. And he winds up feeding pigs, which is the most shameful job you could possibly have as a young Jewish man. And it's there that he finally comes to himself. He's like, what am I doing? I'm feeding these pigs like I could be gosh, I could be like a servant in my father's house. So he comes to himself and he comes back to his dad and he has his rehearsed speech. And we all know what our rehearsed speeches have been when we have to go back to our parents. We have to tell them how unworthy we know we are. We know we should grovel in the dirt. And he just starts saying, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Just take me as a servant. I won't even ask for a bed. I'll sleep outside. He starts with his speech and the father doesn't even listen to the speech, doesn't even address it. He throws a robe around and puts a ring on his finger and says, kill the fattened calf. We're having filet mignon tonight. Let's have a party. And we're all like, yes, that's the love of God for me. I have blown it. And he takes me in. And that is absolutely true. But it's at this point of the story that Jesus was telling to the Pharisees who were indignant that he was eating with tax collectors and sinners. It's at this point of the story that everyone is enjoying a party except for the elder brother. He leaves the party, he's standing on the outside and his father actually excuses himself from the, from the festivities and he goes out and he entreats his son to come in. He starts pleading with him don't don't stay outside here come come in we're celebrating yet the brother says back to him look how long i've served you i've i've never disobeyed one of your commandments and he says i've never even gotten a go my brother he's like he's hooked up with hookers and you give him a calf, and I've never even gotten a goat. And the father turns to him and says with compassion in his heart, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So, a sheep gets lost far from home and it's found. And the people rejoice. And one coin is lost inside the house, inside the home. And a woman turns the house upside down to find the thing lost at home. And there's rejoicing. And a younger brother who's made a mess of his life comes home and is forgiven and received with joy. He was lost. And is found. And an older brother has never left home. He's kept all the commands, but he refuses to come to the party. So his father entreats him to let go of his self righteousness and enjoy the feast before him. He's lost at home. And the story ends. So I guess what I want to confess before you um, and what I think we as a church are probably most likely to be struggling with right now is our own tiredness uh, that's manifested itself in elder brotherliness. Like I've known how, I know how to rejoice in the gospel when I've clearly blown it. Like it's so obvious, if you knew the details of what I had done, you're like, oh my goodness, I'm, I can't believe that. And God forgives me then. But what about when our sin has been domesticated for a while? What about when it doesn't look as nasty from the outside? Are we still, are we still finding what 1 Corinthians 15 says? Are we still finding that the cross is continuing to save us? That it wasn't just this one-time thing that like wiped us and got us clean, but it continues to be our hope. I want to I wanna hold out that this parable and really the whole of the Christian life is about what we boast in, what, what we celebrate, what we're willing to revel in glory in. And for us as Christians, our rejoicing, our boasting, it needs to, to only ever continually be the cross of Jesus Christ. And the moment we think we've gotten cleaned up, and I'm so thankful for the cross that saved me nine years ago, and that I'm living a respectable life now. I'm so glad, I'm so glad I have an offer to make to my deplorable neighbor that this could really clean up their life. The moment we stop thinking we need the cross of Christ today to be right with God. We've missed it. So what I want us to do is, I'll lay my cards out. I want, us, I want us to do the following things. I want us to look at the cross and consider all that the cross has achieved for us. And I want us to end in boasting in the cross. Okay, so we're going to look at Galatians 6, 14, and 15 under those headings of beholding the cross, the blessings of the cross, and boasting in the cross. So in order to behold the cross, we need to understand, remind ourselves, if we've heard before, understand for the first time what the situation is going on that the letter of Galatians was written in. Uh, So what's happened is men have come in and said the following, Believe in Jesus Christ and be circumcised. They're telling people, you need something in addition to faith in Christ's work on your behalf. Believe in Christ and show you believe it by doing this thing, this extra biblical command, this thing that is not in scripture. All the right doctrine and belief plus your current good works will save you. Modern translation of this is uh, put all of your hope in Jesus Christ. And have pretty good church attendance, daily Bible reading, preferably ESV or NASB. Uh, Raise your hands at the right time of worship. Be well thought of in this church. And if you look at your life and you believe in Jesus and you see those things, you're probably doing pretty well. You're, You're safe. And up to this point, Paul has been dictating his entire letter to a person to write it for him. He's been persuasively arguing and tearing down the false gospel of those men known as the Judaizers who said, You need to do this thing too to be saved, in addition to trusting in Christ. But now he says, Give me the pen. I need to write this next part myself. Paul writes, verse 11 of Galatians 6, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. He says, church, I need you to hear this. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Paul tears right through the actions straight to the motive of anyone who would add to the cross of Christ in any way. And he says this about them. You're doing that because you want to look good in front of other people, and because you actually don't want to suffer the scorn of the cross yourself. You don't want to identify with the shame that the cross represents. He says that, and he also says, and anyone who wants to keep part of the law, don't you know, if you want to keep part of the law, you have to keep the whole entire thing. To all of this, Paul says, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Paul says, I have one hope, I have one claim, I have one boast. And it lays completely outside of me. And anything I have done or could ever do, I will only boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. Now we have a little work to do because 2,000 years removed and coating crosses in gold has done something to our perception of the cross. So I want us to try to recover a sense of what the cross meant in, in Jesus's day to the original hearers of that. So, uh, written around this time is a quote from Cicero. You might have heard of him. Uh, he says this. To bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To kill him is almost an act of murder. Which, I don't know on the logic of that, but... But then he says this. To crucify him is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. The cross is the most shameful way a person could ever die in all of history. A a beloved one nailed to beams of wood who hang naked for everyone to see. You're you're losing your breath. So as you go up to get more breath, you're hanging on the nails, inflicting more pain on yourself. It's the most shameful way anyone has ever been executed in all of history the people that came up with it are like, there's there's not words to describe how terrible this is. And so Paul's saying, let your one boast and your one joy be the brutal crucifixion execution of an innocent man, the son of God. Let that be your boast. Now, why why would Paul say this? That beckons the question, why would Paul say this? Because we, we get when we're singing in a song and it's got the melody and we like it, and it's, that cross, not too bad, right? And then we look at the cross itself and we have to ask ourselves, what could have put... Jesus Christ there, and why should I boast in this? This is the most horrific thing I've ever seen, and especially Paul, because depending on how you date Galatians, we're going to say this is at least 15 years after his conversion, and Paul is living the most amazing Christian life at this point. He's being persecuted for the gospel. He's bearing it gladly. In the book of Philippians, there's even going to get this. This is blowing my mind currently. Uh, in the book of Philippians, he's going to say, uh, there's people who have come into my churches. I'll write this a little later, but an insight to the kind of uh, thing, work, of grace that God's doing in Paul's heart. There's people who have come into the churches I planted, and they literally preach as good as they can just to make people hate me and make me jealous of them. That is actually their motive. What should be done with them? He says, I'm just going to rejoice that the name of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed. That, that, that is astonishing to me, that that's who Paul is. And he says, but this is my boast, the cross of Jesus Christ. He's he stopped his gross, obvious sins, it seems. He's Uh, He has a better claim on righteousness than any one of us sitting in this room. So why would he boast in the cross of Christ? Well, he, he understands the size of sin. He knows first, his good works will never be enough. They'll never be enough. God says, actually, I don't want your burnt offerings and your sacrifices. I want a broken and contrite heart that's what I want. And he knows if, if, if you want to justify yourself before God by your good works, you've got to keep every single command. And the chief command among all of them is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might, all your strength. So within that, that says love God before everything else. And actually, if you love God, you will keep the commandments. But it means that when we break the commandments, it's actually because we are not loving God. We we don't like that news. We don't like facing that. I don't know why I sinned. I mean, I love God so much, but I chose to do this thing. It's because in that moment, we have chosen to love something above God. And if you have never been born again, If you have have grown up in this church or a church or you have had a Christian family, but you have never been born again, you have never been given a new heart, you don't actually love God because no one loves God apart from him giving them a new heart. You're actually like the older brother who on the surface keeps the commands but refuses to join in the celebration and it leads to exhaustion it always leads to exhaustion but in the cross of jesus christ we see that as first john 4 says in this is love not that we have loved god but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins that word propitiation means that sacrifice that takes away, that absorbs the wrath our sins actually deserve. Why was the cross so horrific? Because it was the propitiation for our sins. All that every child of God had ever done against them or ever would do was poured out on the cross of Christ, suffering where we deserve to suffer in our place. So get this. God, seeing into the heart of every man and every woman, sees that we would sin against him. Uh, we would love creation instead of the creator, as Roman 1 says. Romans 1 says, we exchange the glory of God uh, for its for creation, we put things in the place of God and worship them as if they were God and that God would send prophets and we'd kill them. God would send kings and they'd be corrupt rulers. He would send his own son and we'd crucify him. He did not look down a corridor and see who would love him one day. Who, who at the bottom of their heart actually had a speck of gold and he saw that in them so he would choose to save them, but instead he actually saw that we had not loved him, that we were, as Ephesians 2 says, dead in our sins and that we would never choose him apart from him making us alive in Christ. And it's a love like that that makes creation new. It's a love displayed for sinners who had not started doing better, but were dead in their sins. That grants a new heart. This is what it means that Christ died for sinners. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. So behold the cross, God loving sinners by taking the wrath their sin deserves, God loving you and God loving me, God receiving the younger brother with joy and open arms, and God going and entreating the one that would be justified by what they did, going and pleading with the self-righteous who can't actually see that they're just as sick. So Paul says, that was me. I was dead. But he made me alive. And so I'm, I'm only ever going to boast in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. But this isn't like just a somber boasting. This is truly rejoicing because every blessing the Christian the Christian enjoys in life is because of the cross. Uh, so let's talk about the blessings of the cross. Paul says, by means of the cross of Christ, first, the world has been crucified to him and he to the world. Now, notice the past tense verbs in there that the world has been crucified to him. Something definitive has happened and he in turn, to the world has been crucified. What this means is this, that all the siren calls of the world, every claim, if you do this, you will be happy. If you earn this, if you prove yourself, you'll be loved. If you finally get to the spot, you'll have rest. They've lost their claim over us. See, the world system is essentially works righteousness. Uh, earn enough money, marry a beautiful enough person, have an Instagrammable enough home, and you matter. If you do those things, you matter. If you get enough stuff, if you look presentable enough, then you can have peace. You can have rest. And we need to see that, that we're constantly hearing those siren calls, that are apart from the cross of Jesus Christ, that take no consideration into them for joy and happiness and reconciliation with God. And we need to say, okay, I can't just tack on justification by faith to that, right? Like I can't live my life, it's too exhausting Monday through Saturday, living, listening to the world's siren calls of how I can have peace in my life and then expect expect. I actually believe that the world has been crucified to me. We're not experiencing that if we're living according to the works righteousness of the world, but the cross means definitively something has happened that the world has lost its power over us in some way. What is that way? Well, not only has the world system and its values been crucified to us, because as we come to the cross, we have to say this is more important than anything else. And anything this calls me to, I have to obey no matter what anyone else says. Not only has the world been crucified to us, but we've been crucified to the world. Paul says earlier in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In this life, I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, the power, I believe, Galatians 2.20 is once again in the past tense verbs. Christ loved me and he gave himself for me so that as I look at the cross, I'm not left to vague thoughts of God is loving and God is merciful just because he is, but instead I'm given a rock solid foundation proof that the son of god has loved me is it kind of astonishing that paul says he loved me in the past tense i would i would expect him to say god loves me but he said he says no he did love me and he continues to but i point back to this as my proof and i know this because he's broken into human history and he gave his life for me This means at the foot of the cross of Christ, we celebrate our own funeral. That the person we were before Christ, following our own passions, enslaved to the things we thought could please us, addicted to the approval of other people, with an undying thirst to prove that we're worthy, we died with Christ too. That old man, that old woman lies in the grave where he once lied. As surely as Christ died on the cross, we who trust in him died. And as surely as he rose from the dead, we have risen to new life. And if you're in Christ, this means you're no longer a slave to your old passions and addictions and your flesh. You're really not. Romans 6 says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, this this doesn't mean we don't still feel the pull of temptation to sin but it does mean that you are not a slave to sin. That sin does not have the definitive power over you that has been broken. What was that power? It was the power to condemn you. The power to say before you that Satan could come before you and say, look at all your sin, you deserve to be punished. You deserve to go to hell. And we can look at that and say, you're right, but that was poured out on Christ on the cross. And so all the wrath of God I deserve, he willingly took for me. That the damning power of sin has been broken for those in Christ because it was poured out on him. So we are no longer slaves to sin. That we will have progressive sanctification. That means it's not overnight that I only ever want to do holy things But that God's spirit inside me, as surely as he rose Christ from the dead, I have that power working inside of me, and I'm not a slave to sin. Not only do we celebrate our own funeral, but we we celebrate our regeneration, our new hearts, our new life in Christ. We have the blessings of the world ceasing to have claim on us and being born again and it's because of the cross that we actually enjoy every blessing of God. Paul, Paul argues this way. He says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So it's really important we understand how this verse is working, how Paul is arguing with us because he's saying if Christ didn't give him self for us if God didn't spare his own son for us how are we not going to enjoy every other blessing that God has for us how will he not graciously with us give or graciously with him give us all things so the logic he's using here is from greater to lesser you get that he's saying if he didn't spare his own son yeah he's also going to give you the other blessings of life that he has for you in Christ. It's not it's not flipped the other way around. I know God loves me because he's blessed me in this and this and this and he even threw in his son. No, 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 no. If he didn't spare his own son, that's the anchor of our hope. That's the assurance that we are loved. Look at the spiritual blessings contained in Ephesians 1 because they're just so packed in here. Ephesians 1 verse 3 through 8 says the following. Blessed blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. We have... Every spiritual blessing in Christ. Some of those listed in Ephesians one is that we've been adopted into God's family, and we've been adopted as sons. And why that's significant is God wants us to know it was sons in Roman culture that are going to get uh, the inheritance of the father. It's sons that have a share in what God's uh, in what their father owns that we're co-heirs with Christ because we have been adopted by him. That the future new heavens and new earth are our dwelling place with Christ by virtue of being adopted through the cross of Christ. It also means that God chose us. He adopted us. Now, the reason that's good news is, does does God make decisions with all the information? Yes. Yes. God knows everything. A lot of us have made really poor purchasing decisions because we didn't have all the info, right? Like the car looked so good on the outside, but then you put it into drive. You're like, "Uh oh, there's a problem here. That doesn't happen with God. God doesn't, God doesn't adopt someone into his family. And a couple years later say, wait, are you serious? Are you kidding me? I didn't, I didn't know you were going to do that. If, if I would have known, I would have never given my son for you. No, he doesn't. He knows all things and he adopts us into his family. It means he's not going to turn his back on us. It means that he has all the info and it means he does not regret saving you, son or daughter of God. Not only are we adopted, but we have redemption through his blood. Not redemption through the next, the next so many years that I have, I'll do what it takes to make it to heaven. Not redemption by, I'm going to do better next time. Redemption through the blood of Christ. Already shed, already given. A place to rest. Rest. And we have forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace. Um, so if Paul argued from greater to lesser that God giving his own son, how we not also graciously give us all things? I want to make an argument from my own life uh, from lesser to greater. Okay? So what I'm about to tell you a little story. Uh, if, if this happened, which is a lesser thing, what does it say about God and his riches, okay? Have any of you guys ever known someone like really rich? Like, I mean, you thought you knew rich people before and you're like, I didn't even know this much money was printed in the planet. Um, so I was, uh, I was a senior in high school and uh, some different circumstances led kind of the recession of the, of the late 2000s, you know. Early 2008, around uh, 2009. The recession led to my family being in a hard spot. Uh, My dad's a contractor. First thing to go off in recessions is um, construction. And we actually ended up uh, having to foreclose on our house. Uh, And it was during that time we decided we were going to move in with my grandma. And uh, then she, shortly after, found out she was uh, pretty sick, had pancreatic cancer, and passed away pretty shortly after. So it was was just a hard time, Uh, and it was in the midst of all that that we had some family from back east come out for the funeral, and uh, my parents were just catching up with some relatives, and they're kind of uh, talking about our family and where we're at and what's going to happen, and subject of, oh, what's Travis going to do next year for college? And I had gone into a few different places. Uh, but it was kind of like we didn't really have the money to send me anymore, anywhere. And so I was going to go to the local junior college, which, can we be real, like not the worst thing in the world, like uh, living in America. Uh, so, but we're deciding that, uh, at which point they say, you know, we probably don't have the means to send them anywhere, at which point my dad's cousin says, well, you know, something Ralph likes to do is pay for kids' college who can't afford it. Um, And for context, I, at this point in life, had never met Ralph. Uh, Ralph was my dad's uncle, and uh, something he liked to do was send kids to college. Now, Ralph's story is something... Pretty crazy. He uh, he fought in World War II, and he was going in. Uh, he was going to just be an infantryman, but he really wanted to be a pilot. But at that time, just engineers were pilots, and you pretty much had to have a college education for that. And he was too young to have graduated college. But he says, "Just let me take the test." So he takes the test, and he gets the second highest score in the Marine Corps. And so, they're like, well, I guess you can be a pilot now. And so he's a pilot, and he flies in dozens of combat missions over the Pacific. Uh, and he comes back, and he goes to Princeton on the GI Bill. And uh, time, he's not uh, super, he, he just has a service coat that he wears to his interviews. Uh, but he graduates from there, and he gets a, co- a job at a little company called Procter & Gamble. And he uh, works his way up and is a very bright guy. And he ends up as vice president of marketing for Procter & Gamble, at which point he was uh, then he's up for a promotion, uh, and they don't give him the promotion. He gets passed over. And he, was, he got a little upset over it, so he left with all the talent of Procter & Gamble and started the world's first marketing consulting firm. And his clients were uh, like Pittsburgh Glass and McDonald's and GE and uh, some of these uh, different companies. All this to say, uh, Ralph is very, very... Uh, well off. He's very well off. He, uh, he's comfortable. That's what we would say. I'm comfortable. Uh, so he, uh, he likes to pay for kids' colleges. I can't afford it. So unbeknownst to me, my parents write him a letter, which is astonishing, especially, uh, especially knowing my own dad, who's the hardest working guy I've ever known in my entire life. Has never, never looked for a handout in his entire life Um, and on my behalf, he wrote Ralph. Uh, so then they told me, they let me know that they told me or that they wrote him. And so I just started praying like crazy, like, Oh Lord, please. And a few weeks go by and eventually I get a letter, uh, in the mail that I open and it's addressed to me. And it says, Travis, we've heard about your situation. And I just want to let you know, your grandma and grandpa were some of the best people I've ever known. And in memory of your grandma, I'd like to pay for any unmet college expenses that you have, Um, which he's like, pick what college you want to go to and send us the bill, Um, which was unbelievable. I'm like, who has that kind of change just sitting around? Um, So I think he's wealthy. And then stuff starts happening where uh, books are coming up. He says, well, how much money do you need for books? What do books cost these days? just send us a number. And so I send him the number, I think this, and then I'm going to spend the summer in Santa Barbara. And well, what do people do in Santa, what, what, what do people do in Santa Barbara in the summer? I'm like, I don't know, live the best life ever. Like, uh, <laughs> and he says, well, well, here's some money, here's some money to enjoy the summer. And at one point I took a May term where I'm uh, taking a class and uh, my rent is on there because I was living student housing and I had taken a job that I was going to Spend all the money that I made at the job to pay for the housing, and just was asking him to pay the for the class, and he he paid for the uh, entire housing for all the summer too. And then I'm getting out of college, and uh, I remember I said uh, I was getting out of college. And I'm like, well, maybe I I kind of want to go to seminary, and Bible says you do not have because you do not ask. So I don't know. So I said, hey, like, can I go to seminary? And he's like yeah, sure, where do you want to go? Also, does this other person want to go too? I was like, uh, seriously? And then God said, don't go to seminary. So, I didn't go to seminary, but it just got to a point where I keep realizing, wait, this guy is so much wealthier than I Ever thought and it kept building and it kept building. And I even overheard a conversation at one point uh, about somebody that had taken some money and his wife said, just let it go. And then I hear it was like a number like $16 million. Like, who can say, let $16 million go? This guy is so much wealthier than I could have ever imagined. And you know what? God owns everything in the universe. You take all the wealth of every Fortune 500 company in this world, and it's not a grain of sand compared to what God owns. Forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of God's grace. We marvel at different brands of cars, but we doubt that God of all the universe could forgive us when he gave his son for us. This means that there's no sin, no sin. Not that one that you say, I know God forgave me for everything, but I can't believe he forgave me for this, that God cannot forgive. He is richer than anyone in this universe. He owns everything. And that that is the riches by which we have forgiveness. We also have fuel for evangelism. Uh, I think the reason I struggle with evangelism is I start thinking, wow, this is pretty offensive what I'm about to tell this person when we eventually get to this conversation, right? You're dead in your sins. You need to be born again because you sin against God. You deserve hell. That's that's pretty bad. Uh, And it is offensive. But you know what? It's still offensive to me. I'm a few years in now. My life looks, um, by God's grace, a little more sanctified than when he saved me. And I still need the cross of Christ. Still, the cross of Christ is the only way I can possibly come to God. That is my only qualification for coming to him. We bring him our good deeds and he says, I I don't want that. You can be made right with me one way and it's by the cross of Christ. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about boasting in the cross. In order to do so, we need to understand that word used, boasting. John Stott writes this. It means to boast in, to glory in, trust in, rejoice in, revel in, live for. The object of our boast or glory fills our horizons. It engrosses our attention and absorbs our time and energy. In a word, our glory is our obsession what are you obsessed with? I know for myself, I spent years being obsessed with my own sin. I was too busy doubting that God could forgive me for the things I had done, was struggling with currently, uh, that I hadn't seen victory over in my life, that I was obsessed with my own unworthiness. Now, we as Christians are absolutely called to kill sin in our life, but we are not called to doubt God's power to forgive. Uh, I remember a turning point in my own life came uh, where uh, I'm a guy that just wears my own emotions on my sleeve. So I'm sitting in my dorm room and I just, my I'm, I'm head's low. I've, I've done something I feel terrible about. And my roommate says, oh, what's wrong, Travis? Uh, what's wrong, Eeyore? So he asked me and I say, man, I just feel so bad. I, I did this thing. I confessed to him. We pray. And then a uh, bit of time goes by. He comes back, and I'm just still in the same exact spot. And he says, Dude, what's wrong? And I say, Hey, I brought my sin to the cross. I just still feel so terrible. I feel so ashamed. And he looked at me and he says, Look, don't stop until you get to the cross. And if you go to Christ and you confess your sin and still feel nothing but shame, remorse, and condemnation, then you haven't truly gone to the cross. Because on the cross, we see God dealing definitively with our sin. If you're still feeling stuck in shame and condemnation, you haven't gone to the cross yet. You'll never lose your sense of awe and wonder that he would forgive you. But he wants to take away the power of condemnation and shame and remorse in your life. I think for a lot of us in the room, uh, we've just kind of drifted. Like we're not doing the big sins we used to. And somewhere along the way, the the gospel has ceased to be good news for us. And so we're like obsessed with what the next big thing is or we're focused on that thing God has or hasn't given us. And so we obsess. We obsess over numbers. Like for me, like what's the attendance at youth group? Or how much money do I make? Or we obsess over what people think about us. We obsess over controlling our kids or other people. We obsess over what God has seemed to withhold from us. But the cross of Christ frees us because you don't have to wake up tomorrow morning and prove your worth at work. Your worth to God was displayed on the cross. You don't have to fear being rejected because the God of all the universe has accepted you and will never leave you or forsake you. You don't need to control others because if God would give his own son for you, is he not fully worth your trust? You don't need to make demands of God because he's giving you himself. And he's coming back for you. And when he comes back, he is gonna make all things new. He is gonna take away every sickness and every disease. But until that day, he's given us his spirit. He said, I'm not gonna leave you. And what we gain most in the gospel is Christ himself. So is that enough for us until the day where he definitively comes back and makes all things new? How can we boast in the cross of Christ? What will it look like? Well, we'll have steadfast joy. That means not something that's all over the place on a graph chart. Uh, we so quickly subtly start trusting in our own merits. We do the checklist in our head. Have we gone to church? Have we killed sins? Have I done the daily reading? Have I been nice enough? etc. But we can tell we're not boasting in the cross when our joy fluctuates up and down with the numbers that matter most to us. Like I'm not trusting in the cross of Christ when youth group was great and I had so many more kids than I thought and they were all paying attention and I'm on cloud nine and God is so good and the next week there's ten kids and I think my call is that of Isaiah's go preach they won't listen you'll say stuff they won't hear you'll show them they won't see and I say God why have you forsaken me (laughs) I'm not trusting I'm not boasting in the cross of Christ we're not when we when our joy is contingent with a number we can see. So, a few things we can do practically. First, be honest about our sin. All of us in this room, our sin was so wicked that Christ had to die for it. He loved you so much, he was glad to do it. But that, that means we gotta be honest about our own sin. We need to stop trusting in our own goodness. When we come to God, when we're heartbroken over something that's happening in life, and we say, how could you do this to me? I did this, this, and this for you. It may be, it may be that we've started trusting in our own goodness, that we're gonna earn something with God. He's kind, he's merciful, he's forgiving. But we need to stop trusting our own goodness. We need to start stop at a certain point looking at ourselves and we need to just look to Christ. And we need to pray the good news into our bones. Because if there is a God who exists and loves you, which there is, and he sent his own son for you, which he did, and his son died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead and is coming back, which he surely is, then wouldn't it stand to reason if we called out him, we asked him, to make himself more beautiful than anything in our lives, that he would answer those kinds of prayers. So here's a list of things that I've had to pray into my own heart in a time where man, everything in the universe told me I was rejected, a failure, I was afraid of being exposed. I prayed these things into my heart, and God, God did some amazing things. First. Because of justification, I'm completely forgiven and fully pleasing to God. I no longer have to fear failure. Because of reconciliation, I am totally accepted by God. I no longer have to fear rejection. Because of propitiation, I am deeply loved by God. I no longer have to fear punishment or punish others. Because of regeneration, I've been made brand new, complete in Christ. I no longer need to experience the pain of shame. I encourage you to write those down on an index card and pray them daily into your heart. But lastly, what we need to do is we need to celebrate. We need to boast in the cross of Christ because you were made to worship. And maybe an idol has been identified in your life. Something you realize, this thing, when it's going well, my joy is like through the roof. And when it's going poorly, like I'm devastated. That's an idol that has sway over your worship and your love and your affections. And if you've realized there's something that's an idol in your life that has more sway over you than than God and what he has said and what he has done for you. You first need to identify it, but we have, as humans, this funny nature where we say, I see the idol. Do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to destroy it. I am going to just take a sledgehammer to that thing and demolish it. But the thing about idols is you don't kill them by just mustering up all your own strength. You actually don't have the power to destroy idols in your life. You stop being an idolater by being a true worshiper and worshiping the true God. And just like, just like the fat statues of false gods fell in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, the idols in our hearts fall as we truly worship God for who he is and what he's done for us in Christ. So let's boast in the cross of Christ.